Good morning, everyone. How you doing? Good, man. Thank you to the two people that said good morning. Back. Hello to everyone watching online as well. Pleasure to be speaking to you this morning. I'm Isaac, as Catherine said. I'm part of the team here at HDB, and I'm very excited that Focus is less than two weeks away. I'll be there. Make some noise if you're going to be there too. Amazing, man. I'm looking forward to it. The weather's going to be great,、uh, which is bittersweet for me. I'm not going to lie, because in January I told myself that this would be the year that I reach peak condition. Yeah, I'm talking fit and healthy, six pack, great skin, like biceps, and most importantly, a fully grown beard, because I've been growing this one for about 15 years. Now,、um, I wanted it all. I don't know what floats your boat, but I was going for like a combination of Idris Elba, yeah, like David Beckham, Anthony Joshua, yeah, George Clooney. I know people love George Clooney and that, and Nicky Gumbel rolled into one. Yeah, that's what I was, that's what I was going for. But one cheeseburger too many, and here I am standing here weighing a little more than I did. In January,、um, I was trying to figure out how bad I've got, but while doing some imaginative play with my son Ezra, he reminded me. So check out this video. Yeah, mate.、Um, can I get、um, chicken nugget meal? Yeah.、Uh, six piece. Yeah. Coke, no ice. Uh, no ice. Have you got any? Is your milkshake machine working? Uh, no. Ah,、oh, shock. So he's witnessed me ordering McDonald's so many times that even he knows the milkshake machine is probably not working. <laughs> the title of my talk today is "Everyone's a Favorite," and the passage I'm reading from is a letter to the early church written by James. So feel free to turn your Bibles to James two verses one to ten, or you can read along on the screen here. And if you're watching online. It says this, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, "Here's a good seat for you," but say to the poor man, "You stand there or sit on the floor by my feet." Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised those who love Him? But you have dishonoured the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of Him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Now, just for a bit of background, James is talking to a very partial age. Partiality basically means that you base your treatment of someone or your attitude towards them on something that should not be the basis of how you treat them. I look at the, this passage through non-judgmental eyes because everyone's partial to some extent. I have things that I'm biased about, 
You know, for example, I love food, but I have a particular liking for Nando's. Um, I love music, but I have a particular liking for the Spice Girls. Um, don't know why everyone's laughing. If you're judging me, you need to spice up your life. Um, <laughs> I'm a dad, sorry, I can't help it. It's okay to prefer sports teams or music artists, but James is dealing with something completely different here. He's writing to an age filled with prejudice and hatred, and it's all rooted in and based on class, ethnicity, nationality, and religious background. Back then, people were often categorized because they were Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, slave or free. One of the significant things that Jesus was passionate about was breaking down those walls. Before he gets into the nitty-gritty, I love the way James starts in verse 1. Straight out the gate, we see something important. He says, my brothers and sisters. Well, what does that mean? It means he's viewing the people that he's writing to as family. And why is that important? It's important because he's about to speak some honest truths. And those truths might make people feel uncomfortable. So he wants them to know that it's through a lens of love. It's family business. My mom loves doing this. She starts with my son every time she's about to tell me an honest truth that I might not appreciate. She wants me to know it's through a lens of love. For example, she's not the biggest fan of when my dreadlocks are hanging down. She prefers them in a ponytail because apparently it suits my face better. That's what she says. So she'll say, my son, I love you, but don't you think you should put your hair in a ponytail? Would you have it down like that if you met the queen? For some reason, I don't know why, but the moral standard in my mom's house is, would you do this if you were meeting the queen? <laughs> to which I respond, number one, yes, I might. And number two, mom, when have we ever been remotely close to meeting the queen? You know? Unless you've seen her picking up bananas in Tesco Express, I think, I think we'll be all right. So James wants us to know that we're family. And then he says, believers must not show favoritism. Now, I'm not going to lie, I need some grace from you all this morning because this is a really hard passage to share because it's so direct. It's uncomfortable, but sometimes uncomfortable conversations are necessary for godly growth. My parents are from Ghana, so they're very direct, and that's rubbed off on me a little bit. But I was raised in the United Kingdom. I hold a British passport, and I don't want to stereotype, so I'll speak for myself. But sometimes British people can struggle to be direct. I know I'm not alone, so I made a list of five things British people say versus what they actually mean. So number one, everyone say number one. Oh, a bit more energy than that. Everyone say number one. Great. So if someone invites me out and I say, oh, I might join you later. You know, what I actually mean is I'm not leaving my house unless Jesus comes back. Yeah. Or if I'm at your house and I stand up and I say, right, better start making a move. What I actually mean is I've been trying to leave your house for about three hours. Yeah? <laughs> Number three, this one might help a, a few of you out. If you're in the park and you're speaking to someone and they look down at their dog and they say, right then, let's get you home. <laughs> what that means is they would absolutely love it if you would stop speaking to them, right? 
When my wife says to me, oh, babe, maybe could you put the washing out before you come upstairs? Now, what she actually means is, if you leave the washing in the washing machine one more time, I'm calling Nikki and Silla Lee and we're starting the marriage course again. <laughs> and finally, one more, uh, if you're new to church. If someone comes up to you and says, is anyone sitting there, mate? What they actually mean is you've got five seconds to move your bag before they move it for you. <laughs> I'm only joking, I'm only joking. It's tough to be direct, but James does it. In verse 2, which will come up on the screen, James talks about how we view rich and poor. In those times, they had no church buildings. Their place of meeting was usually a large room in a wealthy person's house or a hall which was hired. Outsiders were welcome, but there were only a few benches, and the Pharisees were often the people who demanded to be sat on the benches. It actually reminded me a bit of primary school. I don't know if you guys remember when everyone had to sit on the floor, but the year sixes could sit on the benches. Anyone remember that? Yeah? Anyone remember when we upgraded from pencils to biros? Anyone? Okay, not enough. Maybe a few people are still on pencils. Um, Placing rich people in the best places created a class system within their services. Those sitting in the best places were the religious, the educated, the wealthy. And those sitting on the floor were the poor. Maybe James was worried that people in the church were beginning to treat the poor like society treated them. And why is that a problem? Well, society looks at the outward appearance. What job do you have? What car do you drive? What trainers do you have? God operates on a completely different wavelength. First Samuel 16:7 tells us that the God that we have the opportunity of following cares more about the heart than the outward appearance. Another reason it might have been an issue is maybe partiality reveals how selfish we are. We favor rich over poor because we believe that we can get more from the rich person. They can pull strings that the poor person can't, and so we invest our time and our energy there. At this time, it's important for me to say that if you've worked hard and become successful and wealthy, I've got to big you up. That's great. If you were born into an affluent family who were able to give you a head start in life, I've got to big you up as well. That's also great. And lend me a fiver. I'm only, jo I'm only joking. I'm only joking. <laughs> James isn't villainizing rich people here. That would be showing partiality against them. However, James does remind his readers that in the times they were living in, the rich often sinned against and oppressed the poor. And the reason for this is because they loved money. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of every kind of evil. Just last month, a good friend of mine, Archbishop Justin Welby, apologized on behalf of the Church of England because in the 18th century, the Church of England used money they invested into the slave trade to pay clergy. They invested significant funds into the South Sea Company, a company which transported over 34,000 slaves in inhumane conditions. When I say my friend Archbishop Justin Welby, I wasn't just name dropping. I thought it was important to state that he is a mate, and that I respect what he said because so often we can conveniently forget our past because it's easier to pretend that it didn't happen. But even though he wasn't there in the 18th century, he recognizes the history 
of what he's involved in today and wants to play his part in cleaning up a mess that he didn't create. Justin said this, It is only by facing this painful reality that we can take steps towards genuine healing and reconciliation, the path that Jesus Christ calls us to walk. This is a moment for lament, repentance, and restorative action. Maybe James's words are so strong in this passage because he recognizes the painful reality. I'm thankful for people like the Archbishop and people like the vicar of this church, Nikki Gumbel, for being open and honest about our past so that we can play our parts in creating a better future. Verse 8 says, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Maybe he uses the word really because James knew that some of his readers might defend their partiality by saying, I am obeying the law by loving just the rich. They need love too. Well, from experience, I can tell you that it's a lot easier to love the person that can get me box seats at West Ham United. No man's riches get him any nearer to God and no man's poverty keeps him any further away from God. Jesus is no respecter of persons and we shouldn't be either. Verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. I have a, a good friend that used to run a church in Reading and God spoke to him and said that currently this church is for the wealthy and there's a lot of need in your town and it needs to be a church for everyone. So strategically, they opened up their youth group and made it more outreach focused. And they started to attract young people from different walks of life, people from different backgrounds, class, nationalities, economic status. All of these started to come to the church. Some of these young people had issues from childhood that they were working through, some vulnerable and some thriving, but they all found a home at this church. God was moving in a powerful, powerful way. And then my friends started to get emails and texts from the wealthier people in the church that had been there for a while. One family said they were leaving the church, another family followed, and then another. When my friend asked why, they said they didn't like the direction that the church was going in. In other words, they didn't want their kids mixing with the riffraff. Later on in James 2, there's an example he gives of an encounter with someone who doesn't have enough to wear or eat. He says, is it enough to simply tell them to stay warm, get something to eat and go in peace? No, it's not. The words we speak don't mean much if they don't influence our actions. In chapter 1, James compares hearing the word, then ignoring it to a man looking at his face in the mirror and then immediately forgetting what he looks like. Which, if you've had as much McDonald's as I have this year, isn't necessarily a bad thing. You know, in reality, favoritism is influenced by so much. Not just rich v poor, but white v black or brown, able versus disabled, male v female, young v old, single v married, conservative v labor. 
But if we make one person in any of these pairings feel less welcome in our congregations, then we are showing the exact prejudice that James describes. God doesn't show favoritism. To him, everyone's a favorite, even Chelsea fans. (laughs) Every time, every time. So here are three ways in which we can learn to not show favoritism. Number one is be real with yourself. We can't move forward unless we look at ourselves and the ways in which we may have discriminated against people or shown partiality. It's only when we admit that that we can start the journey of unlearning and begin to really love all people. Number two, get your hands dirty. Unbiased, I know I've been talking about not showing favoritism, but when it comes to helping the poor, I genuinely believe that Christians are some of the best at doing it. Just look at what the Love Your Neighbor campaign has achieved. Look at what all of you have done through that. Churches all over the country coming together to provide over a million meals a month to those in need. It's absolutely incredible. But I still feel like God has more for us. I think we can go a step further by getting our hands dirty. The next step from giving handouts is putting your hand in, reaching in and pulling people out of difficult situations. It feels good to give a handout. It's great for the person receiving and it feels great to give. But you know what's harder? Giving up some of our influence, our power, our wealth, our positioning and letting the people that we help come into our spaces giving them a seat at our tables, giving them a voice, doing everything we can to treat those we help like people and not projects. John 13, 35 says this. Jesus says, they will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. And the final point, number three, look at the example of Jesus. In verse one of this chapter, James refers to Jesus as our glorious Lord. Another word for glorious is magnificent. The perfect example of how to live out a life of faith is Jesus. Do you know who his father is? God. And he is more powerful, influential, and affluent than anyone in history bigger than Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Beyonce put together. God created everything, and that's the kind of affluence that Jesus was born into. Yet still, he gave up his position to die on a cross so that we, rich and poor, black, brown and white, old and young, you and me could have life. Society tells us to hold on tight to our wealth as much as we can, our power, our positioning, so that we can gain influence. But how interesting that it was only by serving others, giving away his time, getting his hands dirty, washing the feet of his disciples, that Jesus became the most influential person to walk the earth. Some of you might be thinking, where is the good news in a passage like this? The good news is Jesus, and to him, everyone is a favorite. You are his favorite, and he would love nothing more than to be in relationship with you. But in this passage, 
James is asking, where is the good news for your neighbor? More people will come to know Jesus, come to live a fulfilled life, if those of us in the church learn to love without partiality.